Well, some 400 years before Jesus' birth, the people of God, they had begun to return to Jerusalem after years in exile. And the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. And they had returned to rebuild it. And the temple was a place, the place of, of God's presence. It dwelt there in glory. And it was the point of worship and of glorifying God for the people. It was central to everything. And the, the foundation for the temple had been laid, but the work had stalled. Turns out the work was hard and the opposition was strong. And so God sent to them a gentle rebuke and a little encouragement by way of the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 4, 9 and 10, it says this, Zechariah says, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. You see, when the progress seems small and the work seems long, these are the days of small things, right? It's easy for the work to stall you. I don't know if you've ever had a project where you started it, maybe you ran into a couple of hiccups, a couple of curveballs. It's harder than you thought. And six months later, it's still sitting there about 15% done. Yeah, I've never had that happen to me either, but I've heard that happens to people. The lack of Glamour can be disheartening. But the people who are there at the point of small things, when you see it, when it's at that moment of small things, when you toil in it, when it's finished, when it finally is done, you rejoice all the more. God had said he would help them. And listen, where God is involved in something, humble beginnings are just the seeds of his glory. As we turn to the birth of our Lord, it's a humble beginning. But God is involved, obviously. The presence of God has come to be with us in the flesh. Not in flash, not in pomp, but in a baby. See, God's greatest glories, friends, come from humble beginnings. We're going to see this in our text in three scenes that correspond with each of the three readings that the kids did for us this evening. First, there's a scene of Mary and Joseph at Jesus' birth, and then there's a scene of the angels and the shepherds in the fields, and last, there's a scene where the shepherds visit Jesus. So in this first scene, what we see is this, a humble birth results in glorious fulfillment. There isn't much to look that looks glorious at, at Jesus' birth. I mean, your average birth, you know, in terms of the situation, it's not very glorious in some ways, right? And this is in a stable. It's not how you would intend it to be. It's not how you would think it ought to be. And Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, it says, these are the guys in charge, it seems, as Luke chapter 2 opens. They're ordering everyone around. 
including Jesus' parents. Everyone's got to go where we say we're going to do the census and Mary and Joseph have to travel to Bethlehem. It's, I've heard, an uphill trip, 90 miles. I haven't taken it myself, but it's what I read. So nine months pregnant, here they go. When they get there, there's no room in, in the place where they plan to stay. Jesus ends up being born in a stable among animals, his bed, a feeding trough. It's a humble birth. Yet while earthly powers pull weight, we find that it's God who is pulling the strings. You see, these humble beginnings, they're the first signs of God's glory. Because these humble beginnings were always God's plan. In Psalm 87, it alludes to the fact that the Messiah will be born at a time of the census. The fact that they are returning to the original place of Joseph's family makes us think of the year of Jubilee. And in Leviticus 25.10, it tells us that in the 50th year, each person was to return to the land of their clan. But this year, this Jubilee is, is the Jubilee of all Jubilees. This is the year of the Lord's favor, prophesied for centuries, a return not just from exile in Babylon, but a return from or exile from exile to sin and death. Micah 5, chapter 1 and 2 tells us that, that from this little town of Bethlehem was to come the one who is to be ruler in Israel. Jesus hadn't been, Jesus' parents hadn't been made to travel all the way to Bethlehem. Micah 5, 1 and 2 isn't fulfilled. All the pieces of the puzzle God carefully knits in place for this humble birth. It was always God's plan. You see, he may appear humble to us. But Christ is no less on his throne when he's in the manger. So we move to this second scene. The shepherds, they're in the fields with their flocks, right? And we see that here that a humble message results in a glorious announcement. See, don't we usually show how great something is? Or when we have something great to, 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 to say, to show, to declare, we want to say that great thing to the most impressive people that we can impress. That's the way that we do it, right? If I think this announcement, if I think this great news that I have is, is truly great, then I want to find the greatest people, in earthly terms, to tell it to But that's not how God works. Nothing seems too glorious about some shepherds in a field. But, but the Micah passage in Micah 5, it tells us that the Messiah is a Messiah that will shepherd the flock, right? And, in, and even if we go all the way back to Genesis 35, it is near Bethlehem that Jacob, who is a shepherd, who is Israel, this is where he stopped. Maybe in that same hill where the angels declare the birth of Christ to shepherds. King David, from whom the Messiah is 
descended and on whose throne Jesus takes and fulfills, David himself was what? But a shepherd. Just as everyone assumed that someone like Saul should be king, right? Someone who's a head taller than everyone, someone who looked the part, God looks deeper. And his anointed, his anointed, just as it was David then, is Jesus now. And so we, we come to this announcement of Jesus' birth. You would have thought it would have come to Caesar, but God doesn't do that. When the angels announce Jesus as the Christ, he's, they're saying that he's the anointed one, just as David was anointed and set apart for service to God. So this child would be set apart for the most important service. And when the, the angels announce Jesus as Lord, they are calling him king. You see, it's interesting because Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus had announced good news, he said, calling himself the savior of the world. In, in, in the Greek, it is the exact same phrase. You can find it inscribed on coins that they have found through archaeology, that, that Caesar Augustus is the savior of the world. And while Caesar Augustus is sitting on his throne somewhere, here the angels announce the true savior of the world has come. Ironically, that inscription was found, made on Caesar Augustus's birthday. But there's a more important birthday this day. So the angels tell the shepherds what the real good news is, who the real Savior is, who the real Lord is. And this message has come to glorify God to announce peace to those on whom God's grace rests. You see, while earthly powers try to make something of their name, that's what we do. God's name is made known by heavenly powers. When we read this passage, we marvel at the thought of the host of heaven, right? The, but the messengers are not greater than the message. And the worshipers are not greater than the object of worship. As wonderful and as magnificent as it would have been to see the heavenly host over the skies and those fields and those hills, seeing this baby Jesus is so much greater. It's this good news about Jesus that's truly remarkable. You see, the point isn't the authority of the angels or the authority of the audience, but the authority of the baby and the authority of this good news, his good news. And we do well to remember that. You see, he may appear humble, but Christ no less commands the host of heaven in the manger. We have one last scene. The shepherds, they make haste to see this thing that the angels had foretold, right? That the angels told them about. And, and here in this last scene, we see that humble praise results in glorious witness. The shepherds responded, how? You might expect. I mean, if you were there and, and angels had declared this thing to you, I think you and I would probably make haste to see it as well. And they found Mary and Joseph and Jesus just as it had been told to them. And what was made known to them, then they go ahead and make known to others, right? They tell it to Mary and Joseph, 
And then also, it says all who hear, all who heard. I don't know if that's that evening or the days, the weeks, the months. I would imagine if I was one of those shepherds, it'd be all I could talk about for months, right? Not special men, common shepherds, everyday people relaying an extraordinary message. See, while earthly powers seek praise for themselves, God, God puts joyous praise in our hearts and in our mouths. That's how good He is. What are the reactions at the end of this passage? Not, not, nothing, nothing too significant by visible standards, right? I mean, it says Mary treasures and ponders the things in her heart, the shepherds, they, they see it, they, they glorify it, and then it says they go back to work. They go back to work, albeit glorifying and praising God, but they've still got sheep to watch. The folks who happened to be there in, in a barn uh, that smelled like animals, right? Just ordinary people with extraordinary news, repeating it over and over again in ordinary ways. Friends, that's, that's what Christ has called us to do. pretty humble beginning. It's a pretty humble beginning. You see, he may appear humble, but Christ is no less worthy of praise even in the manger. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. This baby would be the true and better temple the presence of God on earth, the point of all worship, and he would become the cornerstone, the foundation of a new temple, the people of God, all of those who are in Christ, built up into his church. His beginning is anything but glamorous to earthly eyes. As humble as we could imagine, but one day, one day, he will be clearly exalted over all things, undeniably, no mouth will be able to say different, and every knee will bow. See, wherever Jesus is involved, humble beginnings, they're just the seeds of God's glory. The loving Father who plans to save a world that's only rejected Him, a baby in a manger, the Savior King who allows Himself to be hung on a cross, a tiny band of disciples who really believe that Jesus intends His good news to go to the ends of the earth, and 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. So what in your life is humble? What in your life is humble, yet Jesus is there? What in your life is humble, yet this Messiah, this Savior, this Lord, this King is there? The child who decides to follow Christ in the midst of a family who's not Jesus is there. The father who resolves to lead his family as God would want him, even though he's not even sure how to do it, Jesus is there. The Christian who commits to confessing and putting away that sin, even though it's going to be messy at first and they know it, Jesus 
is there. The family who begins praying together for their lost neighbors, Jesus is there. The church who continues to be faithful even when times get tough, Jesus is there. If you are humble right now, if you are humble right now, don't despise it if Christ is there. But rejoice. Praise God. Because you are primed for His glorious work. Make haste to see, make known His deeds, and make much of Him. Let's pray.